Hi, I'm Alexandra Costulis, and today you'll hear my story on San Francisco people. Welcome to San Francisco People. I'm Frank Garza, and today's guest is Alexandra Costulis. Now, Alexandra is an accomplished writer who also teaches creative writing in the city. And she's been teaching the Jack Grapes Method writing program for a number of years now. This program helps students find what's called their deep voice, and she'll explain more about what this is on the show. Alexandra has also recently launched the San Francisco Creative Writing Institute to teach even more creative writing methods, along with adding some more instructors to help her do this. So this podcast is great for anyone who wants to write more, but is struggling or having a hard time getting started because Alexander shares some tips by going through some of her routines, processes, and tools that have helped her become a better writer over the years. My favorite part of the interview, however, was when Alexander talked about her own writing. She tells me about the novel she's finishing up called Persephone Stolen, which uh, is not out yet, but she thinks it'll be out in the next year or so. And I definitely can't wait to get my hands on it, open it up, and start reading because it sounds great. She also does an on-air reading of one of her poems called The Los Angeles of My Youth. I had read the poem before our interview and thought it was really beautiful. But hearing her give the backstory and then read it out loud across the table from me has really been one of my favorite moments of San Francisco people so far. And of course, we talk about what Alexandra loves about San Francisco. She lives in Nopa and shares her favorite spots in the hood and throughout the city. Let's go talk to Alexandra. I took a community creative writing class in high school um, after I got in trouble at school for something. And then um, my mom had a friend who um, her her husband wrote for TV and lived in um, West L.A. And all of the people who he knew were talking about this one class um, taught by a man named Jack Grapes. And then um, I tried to take it. But then he said I was too young because I was still I think I had just turned 17 mm-hmm. and, um, but then, um, so then I just got off the phone. I called him and said, will you, will you take me into your class? And he said, no, you're too young, but call me back in a year. And then, um, my mom said, you should really, uh, push and like tell him that you need a mentor and that you would, you know, you, it's okay. Like they don't have to censor anything for you. And so I did. And then he said, well, read me one of your poems. And I did. And this then on the phone, on the phone. Yeah. Okay. And I did. And then he said, um, he got emotional and he said, you can totally take the class. What was the poem? It, w- it was like a poem about high school or I don't know. It was like about how everything sucked, you know, at yeah. the time. And it, but it was full of like, it was emotion. about you and it was like raw. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. And then, so then I started taking the class and then, um, that really taught me how to write and it really opened me up and changed my life. And then I wasn't really, um, looking forward to college and I didn't have the best grades at the time. But then once I met uh, Jack Grapes and started taking his workshop, I turned my grades around and then I got into UCSB and majored in creative writing and literature and then um, wrote poetry all through college. And then I continued. And then in graduate school, I got my MFA in creative writing um, from Mills College in Oakland. Okay. Tell me more about Jack Grapes. Who is this guy? 
And what is he most known for? Uh, he is, um, he created a concept called method writing, and it's sort of an homage to Stanislavski's method acting. He's an actor and um, a playwright and a poet living in Los Angeles. Um, he's been teaching workshops out of, he started out of his home and he taught these workshops for 30 years or more. And um, he's, people from all walks of life take his class, like from, um, you know, housewives to actors, actresses, um, journalists, professional writers, just people who have a story to tell. Um, and yeah, and he teaches people to find their deep, what he calls their deep voice. It's like the sort of the, the soul of who you are expressed in your writing. And that resonated with me because, um, there's not really a, he calls it the craft of the invisible form. So it's like an invisible thing that keeps people listening to your work and it's that create makes it compelling because you reveal something deep about yourself. And it's sort of, he teaches a process of, of that. So you said this method writing class is about mm-hmm. like helping people find their deep voice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how do you help people find their deep voice? We have specific exercises that we use um, to bring it out and um, but the most important part is stripping away the artifice of writing and to realize that um, good writers create a movie in your mind a movie in your mind yeah like okay. you don't look at the words you just see the, the movie mm. and you see the picture and so to do that you have to not draw attention to your work you know, you draw attention to it by having it be brilliant. But, but a lot of times people think, oh, if I use fancy words or if I'm really poetic, then that's going to make it stand out. But um, just writing like you talk and getting down to that basic level of your, what your voice sounds like when you talk is, the, is really the first step. Um, and then um, building from there. And there's all these ways that you can modulate your voice. And um, we, we teach the technique that the voice is the um is what carries the piece so instead of the plot the voice comes first and and the voice of the piece and the, the feelings that the writer gives to the readers is what keeps you listening and it can be about you know it can be someone that's telling a story about a very quiet person that lives you know um, a, a quiet old lady that lives in the middle of the city or it could be you know um someone um, with like bombs are dropping outside and they're running, but it doesn't ma- the plot is important, but what gets you reading is the particular particularities of the character and why, you know, what, why we should care. And there's a certain, um, empathy that, that we need to sort of develop and have for our characters. And, um, as readers, if we, we need, we, if we have that empathy, we can follow the character anywhere. And a lot of that has to do with vulnerability on the part of the writer, or if it's a fictional piece, vulnerability on the part of the character. So um, when a character is vulnerable, it, it, it draws us in, you know, but yeah. not, um, not vulnerable in the sense like, oh, look at all this bad stuff that's happening to me. Like, woe is me. Like that can get boring after a while, but it's sort of like, you know, the struggles of everyday life that we all have, we, we look for that in our, in writing and, and writing is 
very primary because it's um, in your mind. You're reading it and it's someone like whispering a story to you, but they're in your head. It's like a podcast in your brain. Right. Mm-hmm. So I read a quote from you um, mm-hmm. in an article talking about this method of writing class that you mm-hmm. teach. And it said that the one requirement is that people are willing to go deep and tell the story that they've always wanted to tell. How hard is it for people? I mean, that sounds simple, mm-hmm. but I would imagine for most people that walk into your class that that's a hard thing to do. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think it was Toni Morrison that said that the greatest agony is an untold story inside of you. Mm. It might have been Maya Angelou, actually. I think it's Maya Angelou. But um, there's a certain amount of who we are, you know, stories we tell ourselves and things that comprise our psyches that we carry around with us and maybe past hurts or, or good things or triumphs that we carry around. And I think that people, um, they have their stories with them all the time, like everywhere they go, but accessing them is hard and it, it is difficult to tell the story that you've always wanted to tell. Cause sometimes you want to tell it so badly that it's, you can wreck it or like you can, um, you know, overtell it or, um, or over, um, act it, you know, and it sounds, can sound false or, or, um, or be afraid. Like sometimes people think that, oh, well, my story is boring to me. Like no one cares about this, you know, like, um, I have one student that's writing about her experiences on Tinder and (laughs) I think it's totally interesting, but she's like, oh, this is my life. It's so boring. I don't care. And I'm like, what? We're gripped. You know, it's so interesting. Like it's, people want to read about that, but we don't realize that our boring way of looking at the world, what we, what we think is boring is actually interesting. Yeah. To, um, we should get her on the podcast. I've been wanting to do a podcast where two people go on a Tinder date and I interview them before and afterwards. Oh, she'd be great. And uh, people keep telling me that they'll do it, but no one's come through I for me yet. I think she might do it. All I'll, right, I'll let's do it. I'll give you her name. <laughs> yeah, she's really nice. And she's getting her, um, she walked into my class never having taken a creative writing class before. And then um, now she got into a very uh, prominent MFA program at Bennington College um, mm, after wow. we worked together. And I'm really proud of her. So, so seeing people struggle with um, getting to this point and kind of mm-hmm. like break through those barriers, um, I would imagine it must be pretty rewarding at the end of the class because you have all the students eventually get up and do a reading mm-hmm. at, um, you call it writing gut. Writing, writing from the gut. Writing, writing, from, writing from the gut. Actually, it's right from the gut. Right from the gut. Mm-hmm. So everybody who comes to your class, they write something original. Mm-hmm. And then one day at the end, they get up at mm-hmm. this event. They get in front of a group of people and they read their work. Right? Yes. I would imagine there's probably some pretty emotional moments or some good stories. Yeah. Some really proud moments. Can you share maybe a few of those? Maybe some of your most memorable moments from well, those events. People have written about all sorts of things in my class. And it's, um, you know, a lot of them are like what we call breakthrough pieces or I call them breakthrough pieces. And it's when somebody is surprised by their own ability to go deep, you know, in, in their own sort of they're shocked by their own truth. Like when they they write something down and then they read it out loud sometimes the voice catches like they'll, they might get emotional and that's where, and then the, the class might get emotional too, or the room might get emotional because it's something really revealing. Um, people have written about all sorts of things like about, um, abusive ex-boyfriends, you know, like, and sort of, um, 
one student wrote about how and um she was in a bad relationship and her ex-boyfriend told her to make her san make make him a sandwich and this was like the cliche of all abusive um ex-boyfriends and it was like the way that he told her and her mother was there and it was like the shame of it I don't know that's one um I'm trying to think of other ones woman wrote about her daughter being adopted and um how much she loves her daughter and um and she doesn't see her daughter anymore her daughter's gonna go gonna go away to college Mm. so she has a lot of pieces about about that and what it means and um I don't know you know different um, people write fictional pieces that are um, that have their emotions in them. Like the, the characters are really emotional. Poetry. Um, uh, some people write about their inability to be close to others. You know, and um, one man wrote about his inability to get close to people, and um, how and it was interesting. Um, people have written about you know um, being in love with two people at once. Hmm. Um, I would imagine love gets written about a lot. It does. Heartbreak. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. But then there's funny pieces too. Like someone wrote about a cab driver um, and all from the voice of like a sort of fast talking caricature of a cab driver in New York. And it was funny. You know, and um, they write about moments of joy too. Oh, one woman in the recent um, reading, um, she's a, um, a chemo nurse. And she's retired, and so she does stories about her sort of like from the battlefield of being a nurse um, and like people who've died that she's worked with, and um, and she describes them beautifully, and it's sort of like this army of nurses that tries to heal them and doctors and then what happens to them, and it's, hmm. it's um, done with... She describes them with great dignity, and then her role, is it's really beautiful. Let's talk about your mm-hmm. personal... So you, we've been talking about you're, you teaching people how to write, mm-hmm. but you're a pretty acclaimed writer yourself. Um, I want to talk about some of your projects. Um, from what I understand, you're about to finish up a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you told me you've been working on this for almost seven years. Yeah. Can you tell us about that novel? Sure. Um, it's Right now the title is Persephone Stolen, and it's a it's an intergenerational tale um that weaves in um stolen artifacts um the persephone myth from a modern retelling and um the and, w- Im- and what is that the persephone myth i had heard of it but i had to look it up myself when i was getting ready for this so the persephone myth is um it's it's from ancient greek mythology and um it's the idea of um Persephone was the daughter of Demeter and Demeter um, was the goddess of the harvest and abundance and the earth. And um, Persephone was um, taken underground um, after picking a flower by um, the god of the underworld, Hades, and made to be his queen. And um, she eats, um, her mother looks for her everywhere and can't find her and then finally finds her in Hades as the queen of the underworld and then um uh she tries to make a deal with Hades to let her go but Hades said if if she eats underground anything then she can't come back to the world and what happens is Demeter's in charge of the season so she gets really upset and it's all winter all the time and she's mourning and so all the crops die and then um 
Haiti says, well, she ate six kernels of the pomegranate when she was underground, or I think it's, it might be three. So she ate some of the pomegranate when she was underground. So then because she ate um, the pomegranate, that's significant because she goes above ground and um, only for a few months out of the year. When that's why we have seasons. And so it's like this sort of ancient tale of like coming of age, sort of female coming of age. And um, I'm telling it from the perspective of a Greek American girl named Persephone. Her mother dies and um, she moves to San Francisco to take care of her grandmother who has dementia. And um, uh, she um, sort of is rudderless and has no plan. And then at some point um, her grandmother's house and uh, falls into jeopardy of foreclosure. And um, her grandmother in her demented state gives her an artifact from um, that she says is very valuable, but it, her grandmother's kind of a hoarder. So she, it, Turn, she takes it and she's like, oh, what is this? But it turns out that it's actually very valuable and it's actually um, from the ancient world. And so then Persephone goes on a um, quest to sell it on the black market and an adventure ensues. Oh, I love it. Yeah, thank you. So how much of the story is based on your life? Other, I'm sure you, didn't, you don't have some ancient artifact that you're out searching for, but... Well, yeah, that part's the magical realist part, but um, the the um, the true part is I did take care of my grandmother um, through her dementia, um, and I did move to San Francisco, and um, my uh, family did fall in hard times that we got out of, um, so I feel like it's the struggle of most a lot of people, you know, and I think that. Um, especially with the, the gentrification in San Francisco right now, I think that a lot of people could relate to it. And so that, um, I, I, I don't know. It just, um, the idea of inheritance and, um, what does your family give to you and what do you have to do is something that weighs on me. Cause I always think about like my grandparents when they moved here and how they started and how they didn't have anything. And then, um, how they, you know, they, my grandparents bought their house, um, my grandfather was a, was a produce buyer at Petrini's and on um, retail clerk salary afforded his house. And so, um, and then, um, you know, when I went to college, my grandmother um, mortgaged it and played the stock market and then put me through college. And I always was grateful to her for that. But, um, and then there was a time where, you know, when she got sick, she ran out of money and it was very expensive for elder care. And we were, it was, we almost, didn't keep our place and we would have had to leave and but we we all sort of circled the wagons and and came together and I think that made me stronger and so I'm kind of writing about that experience but in a fictionalized way you know with more adventure and um, magic but it's basically my life and um, along the way in my own life my dad passed away from cancer and my mom got cancer all right around the same time um, wow. my mom survived but um, so they I took, had cancer at the same time together different like within 10 years like my grandmother my first my dad got cancer then um he survived then my grandmother got dementia and then she died and then my mom got cancer and then she survived and then my dad's cancer came back and then he died oh wow so like all within the span of like starting my career as a as a college professor which i did for 
years and years and then um, becoming a writer, you know, as moving from an amateur writer to a serious writer, which I've still sort of grappling with becoming a serious writer. I don't even know if you can be a serious writer. It's kind of silly. It's like playing pretend all the time, but. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I look forward to that coming out when I know you, you probably like uh, hate to answer this question, but when do you think it'll be um, done? It'll be out there for people to read. Well, I am looking to finish it up this summer and I, and I'm sending it in. I've got some interested publishers um, who have expressed interest in the manuscript and I'm going to send it to them um, in the, hopefully in the fall. Um, and I've got some um, interested literary agents as well. So I'm going to go through them first and then see what they, what they, what the editors say. Um, and then see, I, I think maybe in a year. Awesome. All right. You also have a book of poems. That's right. Um, that you, did you recently put this out leaving Los Angeles? It's so that's also in manuscript form. Okay. Um, and it's looking for a publisher. Um, but, um, I have recently written it. It just finished. So I'm sort of submitting it around and, um, yeah, it's called leaving Los Angeles. It's a coming of age, uh, story from a, a woman poet's perspective, but told in, in the po- form of poetry. And so you're going to read mm-hmm. an expert excerpt, mm-hmm. I guess, from one of the poems from that book mm-hmm. today. Yep. Right. Um, this one I loved. Um, I had read through some of some of your work and this poem really jumped out at me. I thought it was a really honest piece. Um, definitely a coming of age tale. And I'd love for you to read it. OK. Um, or give us more background on it. Uh, however, you'd like to. Press forward. Okay, great. So um, I wrote these poems, um, a lot of them last summer, and it was after my dad died, and I went back to help my mom move back to San Francisco, where she's originally from. And um, they were, it was, um, I didn't realize that because I left Los Angeles at 18 and I never looked back, and I never thought of, I was like, oh, I'm so not an LA person. And, um, and I, never thought I would miss it. But then when my mom moved to, um, San Francisco, I got really emotional about leaving. Like I, I guess I always felt like I was still there because my family was there, but I, and then I grieved it and I grieved LA in this huge way. And, and, it, and I, and it became like a new coming of age and I don't know why, but I'm always writing coming of age stories. I think I'm always coming of age, but it's just weird. But, but um, but anyway, so it's, it's about that and it's about, um, sort of the the suffering that I went through. I mean, not to be emo or anything, but the sort of the what I went through at those years that I was taking care of my family um, and finding myself and losing myself. Because I think when you're a writer, um, it sounds like such a weird premise. Like you know, it's so ethereal, and you think like some sometimes like you feel silenced by the world or I did, I felt silenced. Like, what am I doing? This is stupid. Like I should just get a, like a regular job and like buckle down, you know, and there's a certain amount of like self doubt that happened. So it was sort of about that. And I'd be happy to read it. And thank you so much yeah, for liking I'd it. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Okay. So this is called the Los Angeles of my youth part two. Leaving Los Angeles, the Los Angeles of my youth in this rusky, dusky essence. 
inside the belly of a silver-winged plane, over the necklace of beaches, and into the pink and gold sunset I go. This is the whispering of my heart. Always have to leave a place to find it. I found myself in a can of Altoid mints, my voice echoing in the chamber. I found myself. I screamed at the men who tried to take it from me, the bromance, the patriarchy, my father and the devil. And all the lies and fears and insecurities bundled in a ball, a bird with its wings tied with twine, thrown out of sight somehow, underneath the sink with the dishpans. I let myself be bound underwater for 10 years. But then I emerged in a low throaty bellow out of the gloaming, the phosphorescence, the sea foam. I cleared my throat for the first time and began to sing. And I will sing and sing and sing. And when I die or can no longer let out a strong enough breath, when I can't hold a pen anymore, these words will still be here and they will drip out every corner of the page into your ears, under your skin. And you will say, now there is a voice who refused to be silenced. And I will, well, I won't be able to talk because I'll be dead. But the silence will say, whose turn is it now to pick up a pen? And the wind will whisper, yours, girl, yours. I love it. Thank you. And it's so much better to hear you speak it than read it. When you read something like that, that's such a, um, I guess a look back on your life. Does it take you back? Yeah. It takes me to like, um, what it was like to leave it. Yeah. And, and not realizing when I left what I was leaving and the sort of the richness of my experience there. Not, I mean, I know San Francisco, LA have a rivalry, a city rivalry, which I somewhat participate in cause I've hated LA after I left it for years. And then there's something beautiful. Beat LA. Yeah, exactly. I'm actually, I'm a Giants fan. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, um, but I mean, there's something beautiful about LA and, and it's all part of California. So I don't know. And there's something about childhood that we can never get back, you know, and that I think, yeah, that's what it was about for me. What is your, let's say that people listening to this mm-hmm. could only read one piece that you've written um what would be the one poem or short story um that you've written that you know is maybe your favorite or that if you could hand somebody a piece of paper with it to read would would be the one that you'd pick oh gosh it's so hard to answer for a writer (laughs) because then i think it changes i think different part times of my life depending on what i've written recently it changes so um, we'll go back to, mm-hmm. you know how you had to uh, pick the phone and call Jack grapes mm-hmm. and like convince him I mean, mm-hmm. you picked out a poem there. So you have to pick out a, po- you have to pick up the phone today and call somebody mm-hmm. and share with them one piece. Which one do you share with them? I think it's probably one of the poems from this collection, Los Angeles of, um, leaving Los Angeles and the Los Angeles of my youth group of poems. Um, there's another one about um 
that I like reading about Persephone reascending and sort of it's similar themed, like it's coming back up from the underground and where I feel like emotionally and sort of psychically I had been for so many years of, I guess they say like, you're, tw- you know, it takes like 10 years of knocking on doors, you know, and then, and then it seems like then you, you've made it, but I, I've been a lot of, you know, the school of hard knocks of life, mm-hmm. you know, and it's about that. It's like, so I think one some, something from this collection for sure. Um, but it's changed. Like for a while it was my piece um, that I wrote for my thesis for my MFA program, which was published about three times called Calavrita Element in Six Parts. I thought that was the best thing I had ever written. And, um, and it's about um, the Nazi occupation of a small village in southern Greece and what happened to its inhabitants. And it has a magical realism element to it, like something magical happens to one of the characters and he has to grapple with, like, why, why did it happen to me and his survivor's guilt. And um, for a while that was the best piece. And then if now I don't think it is, like, I think it, I got... I acquire different skills as a storyteller and as a poet. So it's not necessarily my best anymore, but it was at one time. I want to ask you about maybe some tips mm-hmm. um, for writers out there. Um, and then also about your like, personal writing processes. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, as I alluded to, and we talked about earlier, I think there's a lot of people that would like to write more, mm-hmm. but they're having a hard time getting past that, you know, initial writer's block. You know, even me, I don't write, you know, I've started journaling a little bit, but I don't write good, much for myself. Yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, that, and that's been great, but even, you know, I'll write these, I'll do these podcasts and then I'll, on my website, I'll write up some show notes. And even that, when I pull up that blank screen, just to write a summary of what we've already talked about, mm-hmm. I have a hard time getting going. And, mm-hmm. and I've kind of like, that's one of the things I kind of say for like first thing in the morning. Like when I get up and I'm fresh and I just like get in there and knock it out. That's good. So something that simple is like even hard for me. What tips do you have for, for people that want to write more, but they're having a hard time getting started? And maybe one thing I'll say also before I hand off to you is I loved your, um, the newsletter that you have on the, uh, you know, for your San Francisco creative writing Institute. I was reading through that in April and one of the posts I really liked was it was called spring renewal, a time for creative rebirth. When you talk about you were, were kind of like nervous and uncomfortable about some new projects you were working on. But then the secret was just to like do it more to like take action, like write more and do more. Yeah. Can you maybe touch on that and just give some general tips out there to people who want to get going? That's okay. So there's so much to say, but lean into the turns, you know, it's, um, whenever you face resistance, come back at it threefold, you know, go back, you know, if someone makes, if you feel like insecure about your writing or, or you run into a snobby person or, um, uh, or a roadblock, then send out your work more, write more, make more. And that's, a great way of combating that sort of stagnancy because you're so just look fear in the face. Yeah. Essentially. And then by doing that, like, I mean, write in your journal every day, write three pages, try to push yourself for three full pages of handwritten work. If you can, as, or at every sitting, maybe four times a week. Um, and it doesn't matter. Don't try to be good. Just write it. You can make it good later. And a lot of times we don't know, like part of be- training as a writer is, 
um, training what to throw away and what not to throw away. And a lot of times we don't, um, we'll, we'll throw things away that are good when we're not trained and we'll keep things that are terrible. Um, and so, um, part of it is training your ear and it's like listening to a recording of yourself or watching yourself on TV. Everyone, it's really hard to go back through your own work. No one likes the sound of their own voice on um, recording and no one likes to look at themselves on TV. You know, it takes a lot of practice to get used to that. And that's the same thing with writing. It takes practice to go back through your old stuff and read it. So some people advocate for just writing and don't even read what you wrote. Just write, write, write. I think you can read it, but um, with a grain of salt, don't edit. Just like work without editing, work sloppy, be messy because it's um, easier to pare down something that's messy than to like take blood from a stone. You know, if there's nothing there, you know, you just, it's harder to say what's not there than it is to cut what's already there in shape. So just say as much as you can and um, develop a routine. And it doesn't have to be like a, if, if you're not a morning person, you don't have to become one. Like I'm not a morning person as you can tell. Um, but, but I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that you can, you can be a night person. You can be a middle of the night writer. You can be a 2 PM writer. You can be like a after dinner writer, but you could be a morning writer too. And then, um, try to shut off all distractions when you work. So, you know, block yourself from social media and get it, try to get yourself in the zone, whatever it is. I had a wonderful teacher in grad school, uh, Christina Garcia, who's a, a fiction writer, and she used to tell us to get r- rituals and like whatever ritual it is. And her ritual is to read poetry mm. before she writes fiction. So she'll read just random poetry books that she'll grab off her shelf and read. And then, then she'll light a candle or something and then write and use a pen you like. It should be like if if you want a fancy pen, you should buy the fancy pen if that's what, you know. I like to buy cheap notebooks from like, target or the car wash but because the i car wash yeah <laughs> i buy a lot of notebooks from the car wash and All target right. and because i don't worry about um like sometimes when they're too nice i i worry like oh i have to really write something really nice in this yeah. notebook and it has to be very profound so if it's some crappy notebook that i got for 250 or like 99 cents it's fine but it should so you write out by hand most of the time versus typing in the computer I write out my poetry by hand and um, and some of my um, journal entries and then that become fiction but then when you're working large like on a novel I think you have to eventually type it up but train yourself by hand too because you should be able to have um, you know be able to write from anywhere and you shouldn't need an internet connection you could just have a pen and a paper you could have a paper bag and an old crayon and you should be able to write. Um, and so that's, and, and train yourself from all different ways you yeah. know, and then be ready. Cause you know, if the inspiration only comes once in a while, the muse doesn't always, you know, enlighten us, but when she does, if you're in practice and you stay in your process, then when you feel inspired, it's going to be really good, but it's sort of like training, you know, and, and you're just doing it all the time, all the time obsessively. And you can do it like, instead of um, going on Facebook or Twitter, you could write in your journal a little bit and describe everything is material, you know, describing the things around you. Um, it, it just keeps you sort of limber. We were talking about Tim Ferriss a little bit, mm-hmm. um, in the four hour work week when you came in and I listened to Tim Ferriss's podcast almost every day. And one of the things he talks about a lot is writing. Um, so this guy, he's written three best-selling books, mm-hmm. but yet he talks about writing 
Like it's just absolute agony for him. Um, he talks about each one of these books that he's gone through, just like just agonizing over putting down pages and putting down words and, you know, his writing process is like writing into the wee hours of the night. Mm-hmm. You know, so I only say that, you know, to anybody who might be listening. I mean, people that have written best-selling books still struggle with this. I struggle with it all yeah. the time. I mean, it it's, doesn't get easier necessarily, no, it, right? It, it but it just learn to push through. Any easier? And it's like I was saying before we started the podcast. It's like you're like you have your head down and you're punching a punching bag, and it's always there. And there's always that writer's block that's always right in front of you like a like a like an adversary and you have to keep punching and keep kicking you know and right. keep going because it's it's never going to not be there you're never going to feel like now's the right time to write there's never a right time you're always going to have doubt and if you don't if you're not nervous there's something wrong you know if you don't have doubt there's something that you need it you need it, it keeps you going and i write because it's the it's the most challenging thing that I've ever done. And I love the challenge, but sometimes it can get, you know, demoralizing, but then you just got to keep going, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's the race. It's like running a race, except you're running against yourself all the time. Yeah. I also read this pretty recently on, you ever heard of brain pickings? Yeah. I like her. Yeah. Yeah. Maria. I'm going to say it wrong. Popova or I don't know how to say it. Popova. Yeah. Something like that. I know I said it wrong there. I apologize to anybody listening. But just yesterday, I saw a tweet from her talking about um, a simple five-step creative process that some guy wrote many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still kind of holds true in terms of like how you come up with new ideas. Um, just five simple steps. And I'll link that to the show notes because I thought it was really great, really great simple process to go through. What tools and programs do you use that help you out? Like I've heard of some called like Scrivular. I've heard of this one where um, you start typing mm-hmm. and if you take too long of a break, it starts like backspacing. So delete um, it? Yeah. So it's kind of like meant to force you to just brain dump your writing and just keep writing instead of like trying to edit to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Do you use any tools like that? Well, I use the G2 pen. The G2 you pen. You know, those black pens with the yeah. ink. I love those. I like those. I like the blue ones, actually. Oh, I like 0. the blue. 0.5 millimeters. Oh, I like the blue <laughs> ones. Yeah, and I and I have to have those. Like, those I can write. And I use these um, these special, these Target notebooks with the creamy pages that are, like, that the, 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 the G2 pens glide really nicely on. So, those are, like, my low-tech mm-hmm. tools. And then um, I use... Um, when I get really distracted and I need to focus and I like sometimes my finger will like put like F on for Facebook and the, in my browser and I won't even know I'm doing it. It'll be like on Facebook or like without even, it's like a sort of sick, like addiction of social media that I think a lot of writers have everyone. I'll be on Twitter and mm-hmm. I'll just put T and it'll just, my computer will be there and I won't know how I got there. So there's a, there's a, a so, um, social networking block tool. Freedom. Freedom, Mac yeah. Freedom, and also um, Antisocial. Okay. So Antisocial is made by the same guy. It's like 10 bucks, and it, it will block you from social media. But it doesn't know about Instagram. Okay. So you can always skip if you if you hate it. But it'll shut your, it won't let you go on it for like, you set the time, like an hour, two yeah. hours, eight hours. That's good. I've recently instituted my own personal policy mm-hmm. of like no social media till the evenings. So I just, I log off. That's smart. So I'm not even tempted to or just it's like maybe one extra step is required and Mm -hmm. like by that time I like hit it 
I look at it and I'm like, nah, I'm not going to log in. Yeah, I don't have it's it. It's so easy to get distracted. I don't have it on my phone because I know, like, I, I have to log in, like, through my, I don't have a, the app anymore because it's really easy. You mentioned you're not a morning person. Do you mm-hmm. do most of your writing at night? Do you, like, what is your routine for writing? I like to write, my hours of power for writing are, like, two to eight, two to ten. Um, so in the afternoon, it used to be middle of the night and now I got, I got too old for that. But, um, but, and it's usually not morning. Like usually I do other things in the morning and I think it's because I used to teach in the morning. And so I would put my energy toward teaching and then, um, and then I would write after around the dinner hour and then Mm -hmm. I eat a late dinner. So let's shift gears and, um, I want to talk about your neighborhood Mm-hmm. what you love about your neighborhood and what you love about San Francisco. And I believe you live in one of my favorite neighborhoods in yeah. the city, Nopa. Yes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So tell me what you love about Nopa. And um, I also want to know what are your three favorite things to do or places to go in your neighborhood? Okay. Um, well, Nopa is weird because it used to be Western Edition and um I, at first, when they started calling it Nopa, I, be, I was very resistant <laughs> to calling it Nopa, and I would laugh. But then... When was this? This was like, I don't know, six years ago? Okay. Or, yeah, five. And then now everyone calls it Nopa, and it, it's like really she-she. Um, and and I, I used to make fun of... There's like a place where you can get like $4 toast, and I used to mock it, but it's delicious toast. The mill. The mill I love the mill. Yeah. yeah. So I've never been, but I've heard about the toast. I like the toast and I didn't think I would, but I like it. And I like all the people there that work there. They seem nice. And like, you can just go there and write. I love to write in my journal there though. I like to write in my journal at like the Starbucks inside of target as well. Cause it's very unassuming. Sometimes it depends on the mood. Okay. I feel very writerly inside the mill and then I feel very grimy and like, un- like unobtrusive inside the target. So yeah. Um, you have like a big soft pretzel. Yeah. Next to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Versus the, the toast. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I like, um, I don't know. I used to hang out on hate street a lot because I hate, hate Ashbury, but now I stop because of the Divisadero opening up. And, um, I like, um, I like Barrelhead Brewery. I just went there mm-hmm. for the first time. Love that place. Me too. What a gem. It is a gem. Yeah. And um, the people are really happy that work there. And a lot of them um, are from the neighborhood and they worked in other places. And then they've I've talked to them and they said, oh, wow, I love working here because now I make triple the money and tips of where I, where I worked before. And um, it's nice to see that it's doing well. And the 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 brewers are really nice. Like they've come out and talked to me before and talked about like, how they make the beer and I'm just a ra- random customer. So I thought that was cool. Um, such a big space. Yeah. Great for like a group. Cause they have all these like really big, like common tables mm-hmm. where like eight to 12 people could sit down. Mm-hmm. And I was in there on a Saturday evening and night and it wasn't like super crowded. Like we had no problem getting a oh, table when we nice. walked in. When they're really crowded, you can go to Bistro Gambrinus, which is right up. I've never been there. I've been wanting to check that out. It's nearby. It's nearby. Okay. And um I've seen that place go through many iterations. Um but it's still it's really nice right now and I like the I like it and it, they have a nice cheeseburger. And um I don't know. Um let's see where else is good. Well I lo- I just love to visit Darrow. 
I mean, that whole, yeah. like, I don't know, what is it, eight-block section there? Around, yeah. Like, where Nopa's kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which, N- Nopa's my favorite restaurant, probably. Really? In the city, definitely one of them. I like it. But I can never get a table there. It's very stressful. Yeah, it is. Going in there and, it like, is. trying to get a seat at the bar, that's for sure. If it's even hard getting a seat at the bar sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's super hard. It's got good food. I like it. It's... um. I don't go there a lot because it's always like stressful. I like mm-hmm. Little Star Pizza. Little Star is great. It's delicious. Have and you been to that 4505 Meats, that barbecue place? Yeah, I like it too. But I love their patio. Like it's such a um, like sunny, mm-hmm. open air patio. Great spot to just sit down and have lunch. But I don't like the line there. Oh, is there a line? I guess There's I've only been like in the afternoon when there wasn't like that big of a line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That I could see that. It's good. I like it. I like... Um, I like Lucky Penny. Hmm, what is it's that? It's this old, like, kind of 24-hour diner that's not, like, all the um, new places. And it has, it's it has like, breakfast all the time. Hmm, and where's I'll, it at? It's on um, Masonic and um, Geary, hmm. right by the okay. Trader Joe's. Okay. But it doesn't, like, not everybody likes it, but I like it. It has It sort of has the old flavor of, I don't know. Right. I like the new and the old. Let's say that you had to move away from San Francisco mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. How would you spend your last day in the city before you left? That's a difficult question, but um, I think um, I don't know. Cause I don't know if I'd be sad. Like it's, if it's like my last day on earth, like what would I do? Would I do something wild or would I do like something um like my usual comfort things. So maybe if if it were my last day in San Francisco, I might do my usual comfort things, um, which would be, I would probably order Chinese takeout and then, um, Oh, so many places. But, um, lately I've been ordering from golden rice bowl, but there are a lot of other places that are good too. Um, there was a place on 30th that I used to order from that was kind of far, but they closed. I was bummed. Um, and then I would get, I probably have a cappuccino in North beach with a cannoli and, um, do you have a favorite spot for that? Cafe Greco probably. And, um, I'd probably go to city lights books. Oh, I forgot to say my favorite restaurant. Actually, I have another one. It's okay. Um, Burma superstar. Okay. Yeah. I've never been. I've oh, been to B Star, but oh, the line's same. always been too long. Above yeah, Superstar you have to really me. brave it, or you put your name on the list, and then you do something else, and then you come back. But I'd probably go to Burma Superstar since I would miss it, and then um, maybe I'd get takeout from Burma Superstar to avoid the crowds because you can do that too. Um, then I would go to Golden Gate Park, and take a walk. Maybe I'd go to the beach chalet maybe i'd drive through golden gate park and say goodbye to the buffalo i don't know that's kind of weird but i would and then um yeah maybe go to green apple bookstore clement i haven't been there yet oh it's nice it's really nice and that's it and then i would just look at beautiful things in the city and walk around and appreciate the architecture Alexandra has so many writing projects going on that we didn't get the chance to talk about all of them on the podcast. But there is one more that I did want to mention 
and it's called The Mid-Market News, which is a new blog that she publishes. It's focused on the emerging mid-market neighborhood, which is, if you know where the uh, Twitter headquarters is, it's you know that area and that neighborhood around there. Uh, that's a rapidly changing hood, and this blog kind of talks about what some of the untold stories and developments are coming out of that hood. So go check it out. To read more about Alexandra and all her interesting projects, check out the San Francisco People website at sfpeoplepodcast.com. From the front page, you can click on Alexandra's picture, and that will take you to a recap of the show and links to everything we talked about. If you're on Twitter, you can follow the show at sfpeoplepodcast. And if you tweet about a San Francisco person doing something interesting, tag your tweet with the hashtag sfpeople. I'll be following those to help me find new guests for the show. And you can also send me an email with your ideas to frank at sfpeoplepodcast. Who knows? Maybe your friend can be one of my next guests on San Francisco People. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back in a few weeks. I'm Frank Garza for San Francisco People.